All right, praise the Lord. Let's open our Bibles this morning and let's uh, go to Genesis 22. I know that this can be said a lot, but this is one of the great chapters of the Bible. Uh, Every chapter, important, great, inspired, but uh, Genesis 22, certainly one of those that you would want on a deserted island. Genesis 22, verses one through 24, the topic, Abraham places his son Isaac on an altar as a sacrifice to God, the title of our message, Altar Boy. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you this morning for uh, the life of Abraham, your friend. And I pray, Lord, that we would get a handle on just what you want to show us about his sacrifice, his almost sacrifice of Isaac. If there's any questions, Lord, that we have about this, that you would answer them by the power and ministry of your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. The prophet Jeremiah went about for a time wearing a yoke upon his shoulders. Hosea married a prostitute who was then unfaithful to their marriage. Ezekiel was told to build a clay model of Jerusalem outside of his house, and then he lay on his side for 390 consecutive days laying siege to the model as people watched him. The Lord told Isaiah to remove the sackcloth he was wearing and to take off his sandals. Isaiah obeyed and it said he walked around naked for three years. Now since the Hebrew word for naked can mean partial nakedness, let's hope he at least wore a loincloth. What were these guys doing? Well, Jeremiah was representing the slavery that Babylon would impose on the people of Judah. Hosea was representing the Jews as being spiritual adulterers who were committing harlotry while God remained a faithful husband to them. Ezekiel was representing the siege of Jerusalem and its ultimate fall. Isaiah was representing what it would be like for the people of Egypt when the king of Assyria led them away as prisoners. God's prophets were on occasion called upon to become living representations of God's word so that others could not mistake or misinterpret the message God wanted them to deliver. Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac is described in a similar manner. Commenting on it in the New Testament, in Hebrews 11, verses 17 and 19, we read this. I'll just read it to you. It says, by faith Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now that last phrase in a figurative sense is the Greek word from which we get our word parable. Men of God like Jeremiah and Hosea and Ezekiel and Isaiah Abraham, they became living parables of God's word, begging the question, are we ever called upon to become living parables? Well, the Apostle Paul had no problem describing Christians as living letters that are being read by all men. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. And so I don't see it as a stretch at all to say that at least in certain circumstances, Christians might be called upon to become living parables. Two aspects of being a living parable are revealed in Abraham, the testing of it and the telling of it. I'll therefore organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the parables you are called upon to live are a supreme testing of your faith. And number two, the parables you are called upon to live are a superior telling of God's faithfulness. Let's take a look, first of all, just in verses one and two at 
the testing of your faith. Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac is perhaps the most intense living parable in our Bible. For him, however, this was first and foremost a severe testing. And so in verse one, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God tested Abraham. We may not like tests like in school, but if properly designed and administered, they do reveal what you know from having put in all the hard work of studying and preparing. When I was in high school, I was a nut job. I didn't study, I, did, I, I barely passed high school. I uh, didn't care for tests, they were a bummer. Uh, then I got out of high school and I realized that if I didn't go to college, I was gonna have to get a job. And so I said, hey, let's go to college. Well, then I got into going to college and, and I enjoyed college and I looked forward to studying and I wanted to take tests because I felt like they did uh, show the hard work that I was putting in. Tests can be a good thing. Tests of faith are designed by God, not so you will fail, but so you will succeed. They prove that you are walking with God, looking to him and trusting him. Warren Wiersbe often says, and I quote, a faith that cannot be tested is not worth having. Here I am reads like a person volunteering for a mission. It is reminiscent of Isaiah's famous statement, here am I God, send me. We should have the understanding of Isaiah and Abraham that in responding to God, we are offering ourselves to be sent by him, to be used by him. When I meet with God, I make myself available to him. Whatever else is going on, whatever else I think is going on, whether it's I'm trying to study or learn or just have fellowship or bring prayer requests or whatever, when I meet with God, I am making myself available to him. Verse two, then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This, a supreme test of Abraham's faith. Calling Isaac your only son, reiterated to Abraham that everything God had ever promised to him was wrapped up in that boy living and producing children of his own. Were he to die, God's very words would be dead. Now today, whacked out individuals kill people and they say, God told me to do it. You've, you've heard that many times. Uh, you know, religious fanatics and, uh, and all. And we rightly judge their actions as something God would not request. But 4,000 years ago, and I say this carefully, uh, everybody around Abraham was sacrificing humans. One researcher in his book, The Strange World of Human Sacrifice, wrote this. He said, the literature shows that human sacrifice was once widespread. It was practiced among the ancient Germans and other European peoples, also in the, near ancient, uh, in the ancient Near East, among the Arabs, the Turks, Indonesia, West Africa, Native Americans, and Polynesia. And so if you get into this, if you start to look at this, uh, but it's so terrible and repulsive, uh, and, and certainly it is, no matter that it was practiced or not, human sacrifice was a very common practice 
and especially among the Canaanite peoples that Abraham was around. It was, it, it was the way that they worshiped God, their God. The idea of sacrificing your firstborn son wasn't really strange in the surrounding cultures. In fact, some of the peoples Abraham was encountering were probably wondering what kind of God he was serving who wasn't requiring the sacrifice of a firstborn son. It was just the most normal thing at that time. I say, glad we weren't alive back then. And so do you if you're a firstborn son. Uh, Still, Abraham didn't know the outcome of this sacrifice. He only knew obedience. I always think I would obey more if I knew the outcome, don't you? If you could see the end of things, oh yeah, yeah, I see where this is going, so I'll really get into it. But that's not obedience, not at all. And the truth is, if we knew some of the things that we'd have to endure for the Lord and with the Lord, we we would just say no. We like getting on the other end of it, where we've learned something about the Lord, where he's revealed himself to us, where his faithfulness has been proven. But if he told us some of the places we had to go and some of the things that we'd have to endure, we'd just beg off and say, yeah, I don't think so. I I don't want to go through that. And so Abraham... uh, knew obedience and he obeyed. He knew God's word to him was true and so he reckoned, as we read in Hebrews, that if he were to offer Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice, then God would raise him from the dead. Abraham and Isaac were called upon to be a living parable of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead in victory over sin and death. They represented that although blood and sacrifice are essential to the forgiveness of sin, no mere human sacrifice can avail. Human sacrifice falls short of meeting the requirement. As we will read in a moment, God must provide himself the sacrifice, and he would in the person of his son. God had promised Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that he would somehow crush the devil but simultaneously, he would suffer. If you go back to the Genesis account, theologians call it, I I can't pronounce it in the Latin, but it's the first gospel is what it means, proto-evangelist, I think. And and, uh, it's where the Lord is talking to Adam and Eve and he talks about how, uh, you know, his seed would come and he would crush the, the serpent's head, but his heel would be bruised. And that's kind of ambiguous, quite honestly. And as the Bible unfolds, as there's a progressive revelation, as we get to where we are seated today with the completed canon of Scripture, we understand what God meant, that he would come in human flesh, born of a virgin, and that he would die on the cross uh, and then rise from the dead on the third day, defeating sin and death and offering the forgiveness of sins. We understand all of that, but how much these Old Testament guys knew or could have known about God coming in the flesh, born of a virgin as a man to die on the cross and then rising from the dead, that's debatable. They just didn't have that revelation. In this almost sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham, now everyone had a living parable of God's substitution and sacrifice. God so loved the world that he would give his only begotten son as a sacrifice to substitute for every lost descendant of Adam and Eve. When the time came, God would not withhold his Isaac. And so with 
the help of the Holy Spirit and with a little bit of insight, you could look at the story of Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac and you could get an understanding of what God was going to do some years later with his own son, Jesus Christ. And it was a living parable of what he had spoken in the Garden of Eden. It made it a little bit clearer as you would scratch your head and think, so God didn't want the human sacrifice. Human sacrifice fails, it falls short, but you still need a sacrifice, and it's the father who is going to sacrifice his son and not spare his son. And so it's a really profound parable. It's the only way, I I mean, not that I was gonna say the only way I can think of as if I'm smart, but you can't really think of another way of portraying that truth other than Abraham taking his son Isaac and nearly sacrificing him. It's fantastic. Now, from a personal point of view, trials and testings are common to the Christian. Uh, Remember that in them, we are always living epistles to be known and read by men. And sometimes you might be called upon to be a living parable. You might actually go through something that is parabolic in that sense. Uh, Now, the rest of the verses, you're called upon to live uh, a parable as a superb telling of God's faithfulness. I want to shift our thinking to how this episode is a figure or a parable of Calvary where God did sacrifice his son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. In this, Abraham is a type of God the Father setting apart his only begotten son for sacrifice. In Romans 8.32, we're told that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Isaac, obviously a type of Jesus Christ. We'll see he was a willing sacrifice. For one thing, he was no toddler, he was in his 30s, probably, I would, um, if you had to guess, you'd say he was 33 because it, it is the perfect type of Jesus Christ who was 33 years old when he was sacrificed on the cross. And so, uh, you know, if you want to think, well, no, he's, he's not that old. He's old enough to walk and he's old enough to carry wood and he's old enough to have a conversation with his dad. I mean, he's, he's in his 30s. He had to willingly submit to being offered by his father. And when in a minute he's gonna say, hey dad, where's the offering? And when it becomes obvious he's the offering, uh, he could have easily said, hey dad, you're an old man now. Catch me if you can. Uh, you know, he willingly submitted to this. We're not told much about Isaac, uh, and so that's why it, we're told it was a test of Abraham's faith, and so we don't wanna talk too much about Isaac except that he was a type of Jesus Christ. He had to willingly submit. In John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus said, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. And so there's that willing submission of Isaac. Verse four, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Abraham and Isaac arrived at Mount Moriah on the third day. That means he left the day after God commanded him and it took three days to get to Moriah, thus making a total of four days. This would correspond perfectly to Exodus 12, three, where the Passover lamb was to be kept and examined for four days before offering it. 
Likewise, Jesus was examined for four days after he entered Jerusalem before being crucified. Verse five, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Great statement of faith. Two men witnessed Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain, but what took place between him and his father, they were not permitted to see. Likewise at Calvary, there were two men, the two thieves on each side of the Lord, but like all the spectators of that scene, they were not permitted to behold what transpired between the father and the son on heaven's altar. Three hours of darkness concealing from every human eye the divine transaction of the payment of our sins. Verse six, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. As I mentioned already, Isaac carried the wood and submitted willingly. Jesus carrying his cross down the Via Dolorosa was in perfect willful submission to his crucifixion. His conclusion in the Garden of Gethsemane was that God's will be done. Verse seven, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father? And he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Not every detail of a parable or a story should be forced to fit something. Isaac is indeed a type of Christ, but he was still Isaac, and he was starting to wonder what was going on. Apparently, Abraham hadn't told him uh, the entire story here, uh, and so he's wondering where the sacrifice was. Abraham had uh, been offering sacrifices on altars for years, and uh, missing was one lamb. And now, his question does give rise to this fantastic answer in verse eight. If you are one of those people who underlines your Bible or highlights it, this is certainly a verse that should be underlined and highlighted. Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now, I read out of the New King James Version, and quite honestly, that's a bad translation of this verse. The words should read, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself the lamb. Whether Abraham knew it or not, this was a prophecy. Only God, by coming in human flesh as a man, could both satisfy the just demands of his holiness and simultaneously be a substitute for the entire human race. If sin is to be forgiven, if men are ever to be saved, God must himself be the lamb that is sacrificed. Verse nine, then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now we watch too much television. And so we get the idea that, you know, Abraham said, hey, what's that? And then he hit him over the head, you know woke up bound on the altar. That's not true. Do not suppose that Isaac was bound so that he would not escape. No, he was in willing submission. The Lord Jesus was likewise bound by soldiers, even though as you read the story of the crucifixion, you know that there's no uh, thought in Christ's mind that he's going to try to escape. When the soldiers first come for him, he makes it clear that he's in charge of everything. Uh, you remember they said they're looking for Jesus and he says, I am, and they fall over backwards. 
There's some indication that that happens twice. Uh, and, and so when they bind him, it's not because he's thinking of uh, escaping. It's just something that they did. And so it keeps the type accurate here. Now, after his one question, Isaac resumed the position and the character of an innocent sacrificial lamb. But the angel of the Lord, verse 11, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What a rush of relief must have flooded their hearts. I mean, I can't even enter into the emotion of that. But what I was thinking of instead was the feelings of Jesus and his father at that moment. The angel of the Lord who's speaking here, that's Jesus in a pre-incarnation appearance. He and his father are watching the living parable of what for them would become the reality. Abraham is fleshing it out. He and Isaac are playing this in front of, you know, everyone, as it were, who would hear this story to see what would definitely take place on Calvary when God did not spare his own son. Verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I know what you're thinking, why a ram and not a lamb? Good question. Abraham's statement, God will provide himself the lamb, actually carries more prophetic weight this way. If God provided a lamb right then, we'd think that this was a prophecy that was immediately fulfilled. God will provide himself a lamb. Well, there it is. But he provides a ram, giving credence to the understanding that there's still a lamb to come. And so when Abraham says God will provide himself a lamb, it's not that his eyes were failing and that he couldn't see that there was a ram and not a lamb. It's so that we would know that this was a prophecy of this future event when Jesus would come, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, the ram caught in the thicket by its horns was not what Abraham meant by his earlier statement concerning the lamb. Human sacrifice fell short. It isn't just that God stayed his hand, it's that he was showing us that it falls short. It does no good to offer a human being in the place of another sinful human being. You can't even die for yourself and go to heaven because the problem is much deeper than that. It could not avail. But a sacrifice is still needed. A substitute is still necessary because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. The Lord will provide is a translation of Jehovah Jireh. It commemorated the present in that God did provide a ram instead of Isaac, but it also contemplated the future when God would provide himself the lamb. And so it's a great name. Um, there, it'd be a great devotional study for us to just go through and every time that God reveals a new name uh, to Abraham. Uh, you, you know, I talked about this a little bit last week 
when God told Abraham he was the eternal God, we look at some of this and we think, okay, yeah, we know he's eternal, we know he's the provider, but uh, Abraham is getting this firsthand and learning about God. He doesn't have a completed Bible. He doesn't have anything, really. And God is showing him things. He says, hey, I am the eternal God. Whoa, that's cool. I am Jehovah Jireh. Wow, sweet. Things that we might take for granted were real revelations to God. Now, geography is also important here in this story. Mount Moriah is not a single peak, but an elongated ridge with several peaks. The place where Abraham offered up Isaac on Mount Moriah would later become the site of Solomon's temple where offering was made for sin. Just above the place that Abraham offered Isaac and the place where the temple was located is Calvary, the place where God provided himself the lamb as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so Abraham couldn't have known all of this, uh, but in this living parable, it was even taking place in the very geography in which God would fulfill what he was showing. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, if not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now God had already made these unconditional promises to Abraham. They were not contingent, therefore, upon his works. His works were consistent, however, with his faith. The test proved his faith. It showed his faith by his works. And so we're saved by grace through faith alone. And then because we're saved, our works will be consistent with our faith. Uh, Read the book of James where he uh, really draws this out. And so God isn't saying, well, Abraham, now that you've done this, I can really bless you. No, he had already promised he would do these things knowing that Abraham's faith was consistent with uh, his works. And so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Uh, Question, where was Isaac? It says Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together. Well, obviously Isaac also returned with Abraham and the two young men. Hold that thought for just a moment as we read these closing verses. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham saying, indeed Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, who's his firstborn, Booz his brother or husband Buzz, I don't know. That's so funny, isn't that? Hey, Huzz, Buzz. Anyway, uh, his brother Kimuel and uh, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Zidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abram's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Teba, Gehem, uh, Thahash, and Makah. Now underline the name Rebekah, at least in your mind. This genealogy is here to show us where Isaac's future bride is going to come from, Rebekah. Now Isaac is curiously absent from Genesis from the time he was offered on Mount Moriah until he receives Rebekah as his bride. 
Sound like anyone we know? After he died on the cross, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he's been physically absent from the earth and will be until he receives his bride. He will receive his bride, the church, when he comes to resurrect and rapture us just prior to the seven-year great tribulation. People still get upset at God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. They try to twist it to show that God, a God is somehow cruel and capricious. Uh, it, and, and on the surface, when you first read it, you think, wow, that's weird. No, it's really a superb telling on a human level of God's plan before the foundation of the earth to save lost human beings. A few centuries later, John the Baptist would identify Jesus by declaring, wow, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one of the things that he meant by that was that now I understand the story of Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac, uh, or Abraham saying, God will provide himself the lamb. And John, like, wow, this is the son of God, very God of very God, come as the promised lamb. And so Abraham and Isaac, an intense living parable. Uh, and you know what? I mean, these guys, these Old Testament guys, they were called upon to do some pretty uh, fantastic things in order to give awareness of the true message of God. In the end, obviously God didn't require, doesn't require human sacrifice, and the almost sacrifice of Isaac shows these cultures that had adopted human sacrifice, that human sacrifice doesn't avail. I mean, if you're thinking about, nobody really knows what's going on, but if you did, you know, you read the, you know, the Abimelech Times the next day, uh, you know, and you think, oh, finally Abraham is going to offer a human sacrifice like all the other nations of the world have been doing for centuries. And then you find out that God stayed his hand. And in that moment, God is communicating that no human sacrifice is sufficient. It, it, why kill your son, your firstborn, or your, your firstborn son, your only begotten son? It's gonna fall short. But I will not spare my own son. And when the God-man comes, as I promised in the Garden of Eden, sin will be forgiven. Lives will be changed for time and for eternity. John knew that in Jesus Christ, God had provided himself the lamb, and I pray that you know it too. Let's pray.